I want to bridge us in towards the first century. And as you open up your Bibles to the New Testament church, the, the New Testament is a collection of the biographies of Jesus, and then you get into the outworking of the early church. And I think actually what happens on the day of Pentecost, which was a day in their moment where the Spirit was poured out on the church, what happened on that day is more than just good feelings or an encounter with God, though it was nothing less than that. I think there was actually a lot more going on in the implications of what it means for the intersection of the church and the culture, and especially the culture and the Holy Spirit. So the last few years, I've had some opportunity at an academic level to wrestle, to wrestle through this. So if you have a Bible and you want to fire it on, because I think this is the new reality for us, or you want to open it up, you can open up to Acts chapter 2 with me. I know this is familiar for some of you guys, and that's okay. I want you to listen in, and if you don't have a Bible, no sweat, it'll be on the back uh, behind me. But I'll just say this. It's interesting that Jesus would... Do all that he does, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all the teachings, he raises from the dead. And you go to imagine as a follower of Jesus thinking, oh, it's on like Donkey Kong, man. He's risen from the dead and his kingdom is now going to be established right here on the earth forever. I mean, if you're going through the toils of following this Jesus guy and he's saying all sorts of weird stuff at times, but it feels, at least feels weird to them, some of the things he's calling them to You would think, man, this is amazing. It's time. It's time to get this thing started. And then he says what? Sayonara. He leaves. Actually, one of the things we see in Acts 1 is he tells his disciples to go to an upper room, to go to a place where they would gather together and they would wait for the promise or the gift. Maybe a better translation of this is this news that would change the world, that something was going to happen. And I'll, I'll just say this. In the unfolding of these events, it seems that God, in his timing, seems to intersect his most transformational moments in the life of his people with cultural moments as well going on in the life of his people. So God, in his timing, seems to intersect some of the most transformational things that happen in them and in their history with critical cultural moments and those moments in his, the people, his people's lives. What I mean by this is, it's no surprise, now as we get to the day of Pentecost, that everybody is together. We have these events where God seems to intercede and move within things that were already happening. Many of you guys probably know that Jesus died on Passover, Right? Like Jesus, it wasn't, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a coincidence that the city of Jerusalem was buzzing at this time uh, on the Passover because ultimately the Jewish people year after year were there for Passover ready to party, ready to celebrate this, this sign of God's deliverance. Now they're there again and Jesus dies. Now, 50 days later, people are celebrating Pentecost. Pentecost is not Pentecostal. Pentecost was a festival that the people would celebrate 50 days after Passover, celebrating God giving Moses the law after they were taken out of slavery. And so it's interesting because God seems to intersect these things. There's these really, these cultural parties and festivals, and it seems like God moves and works within them. And I just think it says to us that God is not distant. Are you with me? He's not far. And he uses things that happen in culture for his Glory, he's not distant. Now it says this, Acts chapter 2, it says, Now, verse 5, they were, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. 
when they heard this sound, uh, when they heard this sound, a great crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. So remember, all through the diaspora, these Jews have descended on Jerusalem to celebrate and party, and now something's happening as the Holy Spirit's poured out. Verse 7, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, uh, and Asia, Phrygia, and that other place, right? Yeah, yeah, that. Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Christians and Arabs, and listen to what they say. We hear these people declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, in our own languages. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Let's talk about language and culture. Language is an interesting thing, isn't it? I think you would agree that over time, language changes. Um, This is so lame, but in 2004, uh, I met my wife, Heather, who's here with our kiddos, and uh, we met on MSN Messenger. (laughs) Nobody finds that funny either. I just find that so, like, remember MSN Messenger? This was after the days of ICQ. Anybody in the house remember ICQ? Like the first ever messaging system member? Uh Uh-oh. Remember those days? The best thing with ICQ is... You couldn't at that, when it first started, you couldn't give each other your username, so you had to give like a 16 or 20 digit code, and then you have to, anyways, we're we're much more evolved now. Um, But uh, Heather and I started chatting, and about a month or six weeks in, uh, I realized it's probably, she invited me, it was probably time to meet her parents. Oh yeah. And so I was living in London at the time, and Heather was at school at Lambton College, so she was living with her parents. And so they invited me down on a Friday evening to come down uh, the 402 and uh, see them. Now, I'll just say this. I was, like, really, I was nervous. Like, what's, how's the song go? Palms are sweaty, weak arms are heavy. Like, I'm white-knuckling my um, car here all the way down, and it's like the middle of spring. The weather's perfect. I was, like, super nervous and traveling down and kind of going over the lines in my head of what I'm going to say. And Heather, I just want to say, Heather is a brilliant, gifted human being. Um, But one of the things that's not, like, totally at the top of the list is directions. Um, This was easier in the first service, I think, because I could get away with just, like, she wasn't here. So, yeah. So I ended up about 15 or 20 minutes the other way from her house, and she's texting me and then finally calling me and trying to kind of bring me back uh, to her place. And so I'm a little fuffled, and I'm pulling into the driveway, and she greets me at the door and gives me a hug. And I turn, and there is her mom. Now, you got to remember, this, this is my future mother-in-law, all right? And she turns to me, and she says, I see she got you bum steer. And even Heather was like, what the? Now, you got to remember, this, this is like the first time I'm meeting my mother-in-law and we're talking about bums. This is weird. This is, can we agree this is a little awkward? And she said it again. I see she got you bum steer. And I just stood there sweating under my arms. I didn't know what to do. Language changes. Uh, some of you know what bum steer means. I think some of you means, uh, ultimately, I didn't know in that moment, it means to give wrong direction or wrong information. But it's just a picture for us that over time, language changes. 
You know, we use a word in our house with our young kids. We use the word sick. Anybody else use the word sick? And when we use this word, we don't use it in a connotation that's negative or like that we have the flu. It's actually a, a positive thing. I was even thinking about this song that came out a couple of years ago. I don't know if you sing it here, but we sing it in our church. It's called Reckless Love. And uh, it's interesting, when that song came out, of course, the Christian blogosphere lit on fire because as Christians, we always need to say something. And people were arguing around the idea, can God really be reckless? And yet we all know that when, if you sing it here or not, when you sing that song, we're not singing as though God is careless. It's like slang now in our culture to talk about something that's self-giving. The point is, is that language over time, it changes. And one of the, I think one of the unique things that we miss from Pentecost, we talk about the moment and this day in which the Spirit is poured out and the beautiful things that happen, and, and it was amazing. But one of the things I think we disconnect at times is what Pentecost does and what it did in these early churches. You know, here they're saying, we hear these people that have been, the Spirit's been poured out on them, we hear them speaking the wonders of God in our own language. Now, if you're a good Bible reader, if you've read through this, the text, something should, like the, the, the lights on the dashboard should be blinking at us because something is happening. If you know the Hebrew origin story, it starts good and in a garden, there's shalom and peace and rest. And we know that sin unravels that to the core. Everything bursts at the seams. The world is tipped on its head. There's all sorts of injustice, all sorts of things happening. God is trying to work with his people. And yet in Genesis 11, we get a picture that ultimately humanity, with the powers, are creating a tower to the heavens. And they're creating it for what? Their own glory. They've completely rebelled. They're, doing their, they're creating civilization, but they're doing it for themselves apart from God's, God's will. And so God actually comes down. The text says God comes down, and he actually disperses them. And what does he do? They had one common language, but what does he do? Disperses the languages of the nations. But listen, now. Now at Pentecost, something is happening. It's actually the great reversal. Any good person that would read the Bible in this time would understand, whoa, you have Babylon and the dispersing of the languages. Now God is giving these disciples in the upper room by his spirit the ability to use different languages to communicate one unified message. It's Babylon flipped on its head. It's the great, it's the great reversal. God is using language now to unify the world through the work of the spirit through the Jesus fathers that have encountered him here. Now you have language, and then you have culture. Culture is an interesting thing. It's quite slippery. There's a lot of debate over what culture is. A guy named Andy Crouch says culture is what we make of the world. Culture is what orders our creativity. It gives us structure within creation for things to happen. Uh, the great sociologist Peter Berger, he said it like this, every human society is an enterprise of world building. That's culture. Now, with culture, we got to drill down and think about this because I think it matters in our moment for what God is calling us uh, to be and, and to do. Because think about it. The world is not just natural. It's cultural, right? So when a baby is born, they're not just born into a natural world. They're born into a particular culture. Um, you know, I think of my own kids. Uh, born, when they were born, they weren't just born into a world with trees and rivers and the sun and the moon and the stars and all that. But they were born into a culture, a world with brick houses and roads that get us from point A to point B. 
a society. They were born into a society that values education and has societal laws that keeps them out of trouble. At least we hope, right? Levi, I'm looking at you, bro. I'm looking at you right now. Just joking. Um, you know, they were born into a world that has all sorts of culture, really good music and not so good music, especially if you listen to country music, right? Or I'm just joking. Professional sports and good coffee and terrible coffee and a particular language, right, that they're born into. How about it, eh? Right? Anybody? Like, there's just, they're Canadian. They were born into this. And they were born into a way, a particular way of communicating with each other. The world is not just natural. It's cultural. Even in my own home, there's a particular culture that they're born into. It's so funny. I, I think of, you know, the bum lady, my mother-in-law. Um, they, uh, I was thinking this week, like, they live in Brights Grove, just outside of Sarnia, this little beach town. It's like heaven on earth. It's like our getaway. So we go there a bunch and spend time with them. And I was just thinking the other day how you can even be in close proximity with each other and cultures can drastically change. So you have this little Canadian beach town and then you get in a car and you literally drive for about 12 minutes over a bridge into the United States of America and it's like, it almost feels like being so close but everything changes. It's crazy to me, more than just like cheap gas and milk and food and stuff. It's a completely different culture. Every time I go over the border, I want to buy a gun, just saying. I feel like I need to buy a Ford F-150. Anybody with me? No? Okay. Put on some camo and eat carbs. When I go to the U.S., I just want to eat carbs. Anybody with me? Olive Garden. Anyways, all the American people here, you, you don't like me, but that's okay. The point is, is you can drive 12 minutes over a bridge and be in such close proximity with each other and cultures can completely change. Your politics, your urban planning, your priorities, everything can completely change. Because culture is not optional. And I, I, I find that we're not talking a ton about this in the church. Culture is not, it's inescapable culture. There is no withdrawing from it. So from the beginning, humans take wheat from the field and they make bread. And they take grapes from the vine and they ferment it over time and make wine. And they make art and music and games and entertainment all working together to make culture. And this is an important discussion in what we're talking about as far as what Pentecost does. Because I would put it like this. Every culture has a particular narrative or story that it's telling. Every culture. I would put it like this. Every culture has a melody that it's singing, a language that it's using. Every culture is telling a particular story. As humans, we embody story. And every culture, doesn't matter where it is, embodies a particular worldview that tells a story. There's a hum to it. One of the questions we have to ask is, what we just read here in Acts 2, what does Pentecost actually do? Again, more than just good feelings on feelings, I think something is drawn out of the day of Pentecost and when the Spirit was poured out that is really, really applicable. A guy named Roger Strawn said, he's a theologian, Canadian guy, awesome guy. He puts it like this. He says, the promises of Pentecost compel us to conclude it is vocational. That is, it baptizes and empowers the company of God's community of, and of God's people to witness as prophets about the arrival of the Messiah and the new age which his arrival has inaugurated. What Strontside is saying is there's something that happens within the community. Again, it's not just like a super, I just need a zap from heaven. 
they begin as a prophethood, as a community of people, to begin to speak out this good news. And ultimately, the Jews that were there for Pentecost listening on, their first interaction was with these people that had ascended on Jerusalem. The Jesus community, empowered by the Spirit, there seems to be this interaction with culture where we become a prophethood. Even deeper is a guy named James K.A. Smith. He's professor of philosophy at Calvin College, brilliant thinker. This guy has changed my life. And I think he actually puts it even better. He says this about Pentecost. He says, when Peter raises his voice, it is to offer an explanation, an account of the phenomena that are swirling around them. His bold interpretation is actually, listen to what he says, a counter-interpretation. The mockers had already offered an interpretation. These phenomena, so speaking in tongues, these things were attributed to drunkenness. And you actually get that in the story. People thought they were drunk. But Peter courageously offers a different interpretation, an outlandish and surprising one to be sure, which only heightens the boldness that stuck, that such an interpretive stand required. Peter's interpretation hinges on verse 16. This is that. In other words, what you're seeing is actually the fulfillment of a promise spoken to Joel, that a day would come when God's Spirit would be poured out so lavishly and with such extravagance that it would erase all distinguishes of class and gender. And so right there at Pentecost, we already see something we have come to associate with postmodernism, a conflict of interpretations. A conflict of interpretations. There was an interpretation at Pentecost. The community of Jesus, through Peter in that moment, brought a different interpretation. So I'll just say this. Every culture has a dominant narrative, a story that is embodied, the story that it's proclaiming. But the Holy Spirit now empowers Jesus' followers to bring a counter-narrative, a counter-interpretation to that worldview. People are saying they were declaring the wonders of God in our own language. And I'll just say this. We, as the people of God now, are invited by the Holy Spirit to speak the language of the culture, but bring a counterinterpretation to this reality. This is what the Holy Spirit actually does within us. I believe this is a major part of what we should get from this. And now, ultimately, it influences how we live and move and breathe as the church community. Now, You hanging in with me? Everybody okay? Now, one thing I did after this is I I just continued to read through the book of Acts, and I realized that there's kind of a pattern here. Every culture has a narrative. Those who are filled with the Holy Spirit seem to come with a counter-narrative, the good news of the kingdom. And as I began to read, I began to realize, like Paul, who was the greatest missionary like ever, and wrote large chunks of letters in the New Testament, actually embodied this in his, in his own life and ministry. He would go to places that had a particular narrative in the Greco-Roman world in ancient Mesopotamia, and he would come, and he'd bring a way better story, and he'd help that story come to bear on, uh, on these cities and on, on these demographics. Now, it's interesting. Paul is a unique guy because, one, he was Jewish, super smart. He actually studied under probably the greatest known rabbi in the entire Jewish world, a guy named Gamaliel. So he was in the Sanhedrin, top guy when it comes to Jewish education. He was also a Greco-Roman citizen. He was a Roman citizen, which was everything in the Roman Empire. To have citizenship was everything. And he spoke the street language of the day, which was Koine Greek. 
And so this, a lot of theologians call him like the third culture kid. He had all of these things going to be the guy that would be used by the Spirit to go to all of these places around the ancient Mesopotamian and bring the good news to bear. And there is a pattern that every, every culture had a narrative, and he came with something that would flip that narrative on its head. Now, do we have a couple minutes? Do we have a, could you have a few minutes before you go to enjoy your nice sunny day? I want to show you. Uh, in the next couple minutes as we close, just how Paul does this. Now, I know this is a first date for us, and I I want you to trust me a little bit. I am not going to have time to read these large chunks of the scripture. I'm going to tell you the story, but I promise it's there. Is this okay? I know first date stuff. You all right? Just nod your head. Make sure you're with me. So your goal, the goal for you this week is either this afternoon to actually read these texts or uh, read it uh, later on this week just so you make sure that it's there, but I promise it is. There's a number of times where Paul does this, but if you look at his second missionary journey in Acts 16, 17, and 19, he actually does this, all right? So Acts 16, he goes to a place called Philippi. And actually, the scriptures say that the Spirit led Paul and his companions to Philippi. They wanted to go up north into Asia Minor, and God's the Spirit of Jesus, the text says, says no, and they cross over, and they go to Philippi. Now, this is how far off Philippi is. Philippi didn't even have a synagogue for the Jewish community. Remember, the Jewish community spread all out. Philippi didn't even have a a synagogue. How do we know this? In the text, in the story, it says that Paul, on Sabbath, has to go down by the water and have these water rituals and prayers on the Sabbath. Where would he go if there was a synagogue in town? He would go to the synagogue. But there's no synagogue in, in, in Philippi. And so Paul with some friends, his companions, and some other people that begin to listen on, begin to do this Sabbath kind of service. And all of a sudden, things begin to flip on its head. People listening on, a lady and her friends named Lydia listen on. And the church actually begins to start in Philippi on the back of uh, these women, especially this woman named Lydia. How cool is that? Where are the ladies at? right? And they say women can't lead or teach, right? Anyway, that's another sermon for another day. The whole church is built on this woman, Lydia. She was a a business owner. She was wealthy. And if you actually read the letter of Philippians, you begin to interact with it. She was a huge part of it. And Paul writes now to this church as it's established later on. In the letter, he begins to talk to them about the way of Jesus and how they're to live it out in Philippi. What's interesting about Philippi, Philippi was literally known as Little Rome. Philippi was a a Roman colony of the the city Rome. It was known as Little Rome. If you were to go to Philippi, you would walk around and you would see all sorts of statues all throughout the city of Caesar, and there were things literally duplicated to make it look like Rome. So you have all of these things happening, and then Paul writes letters and sees the church established in Philippi, and one of the things Paul does is he throws down, baby. It's amazing. Because for most of us that have grown up in the church or been around the church a while, we say things like, Jesus is Lord, or Jesus is the Son of God, and we just go, amen, brother, Jesus is Lord, hallelujah, right? Like you see somebody, Jesus is Lord, and it's like, yeah. And obviously we believe that. What's interesting is that before Jesus was Lord, there was an imperial worship in the empire that declared somebody else as Lord and the Son of God. You literally had to, to trade in the agora, at, like at the marketplace, under certain Caesars, you would have to bow your knee and declare that Caesar was Lord if you wanted your groceries. This was the culture. 
There was already a Lord. His name was Caesar. There was also already a son of God, and his name was Caesar as well. The story goes uh, that Augustus was seen as the son of God, as Julius Caesar, the first Caesar, was deified. And so this was rhetoric and narrative uh, in the Roman Empire that Caesar is Lord, Caesar is the son of God, and then Paul comes along, and what does he say? He drops the mic and says what? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. I want you to see that when Paul went to Philippi and got this going with Lydia and these people, is that there was a particular narrative in Philippi, and it was this. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the Son of God. The counter-narrative that Paul began to bring on this community was that, no, no, no. Caesar is no longer Lord. Jesus is Lord. And it flew in the face of the empire. Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is the Son of God. So when we say these things, I want us, when, you, when even that rolls off your tongue and the songs that we sing, remember, there is some weight behind this as Paul drops it in the face of the Roman Empire. Are you with me, brothers and sisters? We are part of something far more dangerous than anybody ever thought. This is craziness to say these things. To say somebody else is Lord in the first century, you, you don't do that. You're, you're in fear of your life. Now, you don't seem dazzled, so I'm going to give you another example. Is that okay? Is that all right? One chapter over, if you flip one chapter over, Paul goes to this really interesting place called Athens. Athens was a very unique place. It was the heart of philosophy. And in the city, sophistication and intellect was everything. It's a lot of where we get Greek philosophy, and it basically was the thing that the city ran on. Now, Paul, what does he do? If you read the story, he goes into the city and he begins to philosophize with these people. And what does he do? He actually begins to speak their language, but in light of God's work in the, in the world. He begins to speak, he begins to garner their attention by talking with them, but he brings the Jesus way on them. Now, one Old Testament theologian, sorry, New Testament theologian says this, rooted in Old Testament ideas, it appeared that the Greek philosophers, it appealed to the Greek philosophers, philosophers, sorry, by interacting with their thought, even quoting their own writers in a well-informed, respectful way. Its main subject was the error of idolatry. So Paul comes in with this new worldview, this new narrative, and here's what he does. Read it later, okay? He starts with creation. He begins with creation. Here's something interesting. He doesn't say the name Jesus, which probably is a whole other sermon in and of itself. He didn't throw Jesus in their face right away. But he says a couple of really unique things. One of the things he says is this. In him we live and move and have our being. Now, any church people from the 90s? Oh, yeah. Was this not our song? Some of you. In him we live and move. You're looking at me like you never sang this. Come on. Give me a wave if you sung this. And have our being. Right? This was a song we used to sing. Did you know that this here was a hymn to Zeus? Not many people know that. That actually what Paul is quoting here, he's quoting their own hymns and their own poets. In him we live and move and have our being was an actual hymn in their day to the god Zeus. And then what we've done is Paul, uh, Paul took it and started to put this language to Jesus. But it's just interesting that this was actually a hymn to Zeus. Then we probably have heard other things said like this, for we are his offspring, right? We are his offspring, as though this was mutually exclusive to Jesus when we hear Paul use this. This was actually a poem written by the Stoic poet Aratus. What is Paul doing? He's taking things from their culture and now marking it in the Jesus way. 
So what does the Holy Spirit do in Athens? It does all sorts of things. It empowers Paul to meet people where they are, to listen to them, and to use their cultural influences to tell a better story. In Athens, our poets say this, and Paul's like, oh, wait a second, I have a way, can I tell you a better story? In him, the creator of the universe, in Yahweh we live and move and have our being. So the narrative in Athens was this, we'll worship anything and everything. There was even a statue in Athens that you would go to as an altar that was to an unknown god. This is how many gods they worshipped in the pantheon. All sorts of gods. We're going to have a, an altar to an unknown god. And then Paul comes with the counter-narrative, and the counter-narrative is this. Jesus is the source of everything. In Jesus, we live and move and have our being. You see what's happening here? Every culture has a narrative. Paul's coming with a uh, counter-narrative. One more, really quick. Ephesians. You flip two, two chapters over to Acts chapter 19. This is a well-known story to many people. Paul goes into the city of Ephesus, and he moves to secular space. So he actually rents out a, a lecture hall, the Hall of Tyrannius, in the middle of Ephesus, and he begins to dialogue and debate with people there. And if you know a little bit about Ephesus, it was actually, it had one of the wonders of the world in it. Ephesus had this big, massive temple to the goddess called Artemis. And it was literally, like, you, you know how you go to Niagara Falls as one of the wonders of the world? People would come from all over the empire to Ephesus to see this temple that was erected for Artemis. And what people would do, and I don't mean to be crass or gross or anything, but part of what people would do is they would come and they would sleep with temple prostitutes, and this was actually the way of worship in the feminist cult. They would come from all over the world to do this. And so if you know, if you have a wonder of the world in your town, typically what happens with that? The economy is driven by that. You know what I'm saying? Everything in the, in the town is around that. And so you get a picture, actually, of this guy named Demetrius, and what he does is his job is to... He's a, he creates like images of Artemis, like stone images that they would sell. It's like going to Disneyland and you buy a little thing of Mickey Mouse. You know, somebody's livelihood is dependent on that. Typically Disney, right? Gouging all of us. But anyways, another sermon. Um, but here you have Demetrius and his friends losing all of their, their livelihood because Paul has come in, declared the good news, the church is being established and everything is flipping on its head. And over and over we get this picture that the gospel is changing the culture and ultimately, in this case, Demetrius and his friends, they don't like it. And so one of the things that was the common narrative in Ephesus is this. Great is Artemis. This is the, what the, actually, there was a riot that ensued, and this is the thing that they would say. Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis. This was the narrative in Ephesus. But the counter-narrative was this. There's no one good but Jesus. This is what Paul came and said. There is no one good but Jesus. You feel in it, brothers and sisters. Something is happening, and it's more than just, hey, we spoke in tongues in an upper room, you know, a few days ago. No, this is something happened in that room that empowered these believers to go out and take this good news and see it bear on the culture around them. I'll just say this. The, the Holy Spirit seemed to work in and through cultures that were far from Jesus and far from his rule by using the disciples, including Paul, to engage cultural influencers, it's here. Philosophers, it's here. Poets, entertainment, and, and entertainers, and public space. It's all right here. This is what Paul did. He moved in. So one of the questions, the, the, can I just say this? The regular guy's going to be back next week. Is that all right? <laughs> one of the questions I have is, in light of this, 
what do we do with people who can speak in tongues but can't speak to the language of the culture? What do we do? I'm just going to leave some questions here. What do we do with people who can speak in tongues? And I'm, I'm all, by the way, just preface, I believe in that gift. I'm all for that. I practice that regularly. But what if, what do we do with people who can speak in tongues but can't speak the language of the culture? I think if Paul was here, I think he'd probably flip out a bit. He would have some questions for us. Because ultimately what the Holy Spirit did is it helped this community of people and it helps us move and flow and work within us to then go and take this great news to the world. And there's counter, we bring the counter interpretation. As Smith would say, we come and there's this battle of interpretations. And so one of the things I think we need to wrestle through is what we have to discern, and I hope we can all discern this morning, what is the, the story that our culture is telling? I'm in a church plant right in the heart of the city. There are a number of things that my city, as a progressive, growing city, progressive, growing, urban core, there's a story, there's a narrative at play. I think of things like individuality and autonomy being at the depth of what my city screams people need to be. Or what about this? My city oftentimes says, we don't need God because we have all sorts of stuff. What is the gospel? What is the good news? What does this counterinterpretation say to a world like that? I think it has a lot to say. Are you with me? I think it has a lot to say.